Hello, Capital Region. This is Hudson Mohawk Magazine on WOOCLP 105.3 FM in Troy and WOOSLP 98.9 FM in Schenectady, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy. I'm Lavonia Mallory, and I'm still on my couch. And I'm Guy Schaefer, uh, speaking from my bedroom. Uh, Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Mark Dunley speaks with Reverend Nicole Harris, head of the Schenectady NAACP, about the community reaction to the proposed reforms for the Schenectady Police Department. Then on Reclaiming History, Lavonia Mallory brings us part two of her discussion with Scott Richmond, regional director of the uh, ADL, about white supremacy, the attack on our capital, and ways to recognize hate symbols. After that, McKenna Connors hears from botanist and ornithologist Richard Ring about the wonders of and how one can can preserve the biodiversity of the American Northeast. Then we have part two of HMM Roaming Labor correspondent Willie Terry's interview with Hudson Valley Community College professor Tamu Chambers about her 365 days a year Black history educational video project. And to close out the show, Erica Dulcinea Diggs speaks with Simone uh, Agusier, a glass artist who primarily focuses on showcasing the beauty of African-American culture. But first, here are the headlines. The New York Office of the National Organization of Women, long a staunch ally of Cuomo, on Thursday issued a statement calling for him to resign immediately in the face of increasing sexual harassment allegations. The State Assembly has launched its own investigation of Cuomo, separate from the one being conducted by the Attorney General. The latest allegation that the governor sexually assaulted a woman at the governor's mansion has been referred to the Albany Police Department. The Gazette reports that the Schenectady City School District students continued to miss school in high numbers in the second quarter of the school year, with well over one-third of students having missed 18 or more days of school halfway through the year. School leaders are seeking to get consistently absent students into new learning pods located at school buildings and have established a a district team of social workers, counselors, and other staff focused specifically on improving attendance. Schenectady School Board President John Foley on Wednesday said he does not plan to run for re-election in May. The board member Andy Chestnut said he still hasn't decided whether he will pursue re-election. Samuel Rose has announced that he plans to run. Rose, a 2006 Schenectady High School graduate and long-term Schenectady resident, emphasized the importance of the board in providing public accountability over what is taking place in the school district. After 38 years of the Regional Food Bank of Northeastern New York, Mark Quant is retiring. Under Quant's direction, the Regional Food Bank has become one of the largest food banks in the, in the National Feeding America Network, feeding over 350,000 people a month. A federal judge has dismissed New York State's lawsuit challenging the EPA's finding that General Electric's cleanup of PCB contamination in the Upper Hudson River, Hudson Mohawk River, no, the Upper Hudson River, is completed, was complete after the 2015 dredging ended. The judge said the state's lawsuit comes too late and is based on improper theories. EPA said it was legally required to issue the certificate of completion once it acknowledged that GE had lived up to its commitment under the 2002 EPA record of decision. GE could still be held responsible for additional cleanup work, though it would require a new consent decree agreement between GE 
and the EPA. Environmentalists also want the state to finally take action on the dredging of PCBs from the uh, Champaign uh, Canal and it is legally and it's legally responsible for. Up next, we have our first segment. Reverend Nicole Harris, head of the Schenectady NAACP, discusses the community reaction to the proposed reform for the Schenectady Police Department. She discusses strengthening the Civilian Police Review Board, the need for increased diversity, and redirecting funding to community service. This was conducted by Mark Dunley of the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. We're talking with uh, Reverend Nicole Harris, who is the uh, president uh, of the Schenectady NAACP and a pastor at the Duryi uh, Memorial AME uh, Zion Church uh, in Schenectady. Uh, recently, the uh, the city of Schenectady uh, released its proposals on, on police reform. Uh, there, there was a public hearing. Uh, the city's talking about trying to increase training to de-escalate uh, situations, more training to deal with mental health and community issues, and also increase in diversity. But it seemed like a lot of community residents, um, clergy, um, weren't entirely satisfied with the proposal. So we've asked Reverend Harris to come on um, and perhaps give some of your perspective as to, you know, what were some of the good things of what this Connectedy Police Reform Report is talking about, but what are some of the things uh, that also need to be addressed? Well, one of the good things I think is it did talk about training. Uh, and so training is definitely needed. Um, more training as far as um, understanding the communities uh, that you serve and things like that. Um, I believe I, I was uh, part of the, some of the conversations that were uh, done during the process. Um, and one of the things that came up was the number uh, of police officers on, on the Schenectady uh, department that actually lived within the communities that they serve. And so sometimes it is, um, well, one, I think it, it, it is good when you have police officers on the department who um, are familiar with the community, either live there, have grown up there and things like that, but there needs to be training done on uh, understanding culture. Um, so I was glad to see training was involved uh, in what was rolled out. Um, but I do think that there were some things that need to be added um, so that the community can be best served. Well, reading the uh, Daily Gazette article, I noticed that among some of the things that were uh, suggested was um, given more power to Civilian Police Review Board, including the subpoena power and a, a ban on uh, no-knock searches. Were, were those some of the key issues? Um, yes. Uh, we know that, you know, no-knock searches, those are things that uh, resulted in the death of uh, Breonna Taylor. And, you know, it can be a, a problem. I mean, somebody busts bust in your house without you knowing that they're coming. Um, and the person who lives there, um, uh, of course, feels the need to defend themselves. And then uh, then the officers who have come into the house uh, feel the need to defend themselves. And then so you, so you have a problem. So we have to think of different ways to do that as far as the no-knock warrant um, pieces uh, um, talked about. Um, I'm sorry, what was the other piece? There was one other thing that you brought up. Uh, the issue of the uh, increased subpoena powers and over uh, increased oversight for the Civilian Police Review Board. Yes. So... Um, I think what we're asking for with subpoena power is residents want to have a say-so in how they're policed. And so a, a, a review board, a, a civilian uh, 
complaint review board or, or, you know, how do they really, how can they really observe what's going on or how they're being policed if they don't have access to the um, same materials that the an, inter, an internal affairs department, um, and I'm not sure if that's the actual title in Schenectady, but an internal affairs department um, type of, the uh, you know, setup, how, how do they do a proper observation uh, without having access to the same material they would have access to. When we're asking for subpoena power, what we're saying is we want those on that board to be able to see the same things so that they can make an honest uh, observation assessment of what's going on in their community so that they have um, a say-so in how they're being policed. Now, one of the issues that you had um, mentioned was, you know, trying to have increased uh, requirements that people, you know, on the police department are actually, you know, residents of the community. Yeah, you know, how diverse is the um, Schenectady Police Department and how reflective are they of the, uh, you know, the makeup of the city residents? Um, from what I see, not very reflective. Our church, the church that I pastor, is right in the Hamilton Hill section of Schenectady. Um, and so a, it's connected. It seems to be a pretty diverse community, um, but the police department does not seem to reflect the same diversity. One other uh, suggestion I noticed uh, in the press conference was the issue that, you know, police officers should be able to fire for, for racist behavior, not only, uh, you know, while they're on the job, but, but, in, but, but in general, uh, how well has that proposal been received so far? I'm not sure how well it has been received. I, I, I would assume probably by the police union, not too well. <laughs> um, but I think just like any other profession, um, you should have the ability to, to um, terminate officers, employees who are not cut out for the job. I, I'm a pastor now, but I, I, I used to be a teacher. And, you know, teachers didn't automatically get tenure, right, as soon as they walked in the door. Um, and, and I tell people this story all the time, but it's very true. It only took me one year to realize I wasn't a middle school teacher. I was, I'd was i spent one year teaching in a middle school class and go, mm, I don't think I'm cut out for this. I was really great with, uh, with elementary. I was not that great with middle school children. How long does it take for, for us to realize that certain people are not cut out to be police officers? And so if you're not cut out to be a police officer, if you are saying uh, derogatory things about the people that you're supposed to serve, you know, let's say a police officer does get caught while off duty saying something racist, saying something sexist or whatever, you are not, you might not be cut out to be a police officer because you have to serve the very people that you have these uh, these demeaning and thing, uh, you know, things to say about. So, um, yeah, I mean, you know, when I was teaching, I knew I couldn't, certain, I couldn't pick up a, a job on the weekend, you know, doing something that was immoral or, or would, or would um, you know, reflect uh, uh, badly on me as, as a teacher. I can't do it as a pastor. You know, I'm, uh, I'm not a pastor uh, uh, six days a week and, and, you know, doing something else uh, on the seventh day that's going to, to, to throw off uh, throw people off when they see me as a pastor. The same thing with police officers. You can't be policing me five days a week and then two days a week we find out that you're hanging out with uh, a crowd that that does not like black people or or or, or whoever. So how do you um, hope that the the city will move forward um, with the issue of police reform and and how they should 
you know, and, and encourage more participation, but also more direction from, you know, Schenectady residents on this issue? Well, I hope that they will take time to listen to the people. Um, of the the police officers that I've met, and I've only, I've been in Schenectady for a short amount of time. I've been here for about a year and a half. The police officers that, I, police officers that I have met, um, and this is just, you know, on the surface, because it's not like I really have deeper relationships with them, but they seem like, you know, cool guys, <laughs> you know, um, I haven't, uh, maybe for maybe just one or two incidents where I've seen some things, but one-on-one, um, seem like, okay, the majority of our police department probably want to do their jobs effectively, um, want to, uh, protect and serve. Um, but there's something, uh, to be said that there was a young man not too long ago who died in the back of a police car in Schenectady. There's something to be said that there was, that, um, over the summer that there was a police officer that put his knee in someone's neck. We have to look at those things. And I want uh, for the city and its officials to take some time. And I know that they're saying, oh, we've got a deadline, right? The the, the uh, governor has said, we've got to get certain things done by April. Uh, okay, get, you know, I understand that you've got, you've got some pressure on you with the deadlines, but take time, pump the brakes, listen to the people because there's something that they have to say. Also, I, I would like to see uh, more uh, reallocating of funds to to community uh, services and endeavors. Um, that was something I didn't. Well, my opinion, I you know I didn't see enough of in the plan um, because <clears throat> excuse me, those things matter when it comes to having healthy communities. Um, so you know, less buying of uh, riot gear, more putting money into after school programs, things like that. But um, yeah, so I think okay. that's it. I want them to listen uh, to the people, listen to uh, the things that the NAACP has to say, listen to what all of us uh, have to say and connected the clergy against hate and other organizations and residents and, and take the time uh, needed to talk to the most disenfranchised uh, residents in the community. And it takes time. Go ahead, I'm sorry. I'm just going to say, unfortunately, we're out of time. We've been talking with uh, Reverend um, Nicole Harris, president of the Schenectady NAACP, and also a pastor at Dory Memorial AMZ Zion Church. And this has been Mark Dunley for the uh, Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. We thank Mark Dunley for uh, that segment with Reverend Nicole Harris, head of the Schenectady NAACP, discussing police reform in Schenectady. Next, in part two of this episode of Reclaiming History, entitled Reclaiming History with ADL Scott Richmond, The Fight Against Hate, part two, Lavonia Mallory continues her discussion with the regional director of the Anti-Defamation League, Scott Richmond, to talk about white supremacy, the attack on our capital, and ways to recognize hate symbols. In this segment, Mr. Richmond talks about the ADL's campaign to fight hate at local schools and the PROTECT plan. The next segment you're going to hear is part two of my interview with the regional director of the ADL, Anti-Defamation League, Scott Richmond. Stay tuned. Welcome to another segment of Reclaiming History with Livonia Mallory. Our guest tonight, Scott Richmond, serves as the director for ADL's largest regional office covering New York and New Jersey. He oversees fundraising, program initiatives, and leadership development designed to fight anti-Semitism and combat hate in all its forms. He is an experienced advocate, 
dedicated to developing community partnerships and initiatives that provide justice, equity, and fair treatment for all. Mr. Richmond was a practicing attorney and investment banker. He received his undergraduate degree in finance from the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, and he earned his law degree from Brooklyn Law School. Scott subsequently completed an executive certificate program at Columbia University's Business School in Nonprofit Management. He is married and has two grown children and lives in the New York area. Thank you so much, Scott, for joining us on another segment of Reclaiming History. Are you there? I'm here and it's great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Uh, if you go to ADL's website, adl.org, you'll find a lot of information uh, about, um, about our work and about the Center on Extremism. But one thing you're gonna find is a hate symbols database. This is very important. You know, you, you could have a swastika or another symbol. We saw, we saw lots of symbols used, including a noose, uh, uh, unfortunately. Uh, those are obvious symbols. Everybody right. knows what that stands for. It's hurtful. It's painful yes. uh, for for all people of goodwill, I would say. But there are many symbols that people don't know about, uh, and they they don't realize what these symbols mean. And our hate symbols database tries to uh, to expose that. Uh, so when I when I talk about um, uh, exposing extremism to the light of day, that's a piece of it. And if people are aware and, and knowledgeable then these people can't hide behind their, their hate symbols. Can you give me one example of a hate symbol? If you, if you go to our, our database, you're going to see a lot of this. The first thing that comes up is uh, all kinds of numerical symbols. 109, the figure 109, is white supremacist numeric shorthand for the number of countries anti-Semites claim Jews have been expelled from. You know, none of these things mean anything to uh, right. to the average person, but but certainly, uh, and and when they say 110, they're referring to the idea that they should be expelled from the United States. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Well, one of the things I found uh, surprising, uh, shocking, when I was listening to all the news and they were talking about the belief systems of of the QAnons, for example, they believe that the Democrats and the Jews that control everything from behind the scenes are involved in eating babies, child sacrifice, and there's this Jewish laser that's shooting from the sky, creating the fires in California. And I thought this is absolutely ridiculous. These outlandish belief systems that are part of, I call it the mythology, and, 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 and it's not new because Hitler had his own mythology around the Aryan nation, but it, how is it possible that folks can believe these sort of things in 2021? I mean, what's going on in our society that we have such bizarre things happening? I, I am shocked. So uh, thank you for that question. I mean, I would say that anti-Semitism, you know, we, we call it the oldest, uh, uh, the oldest virus, um, you know, it's, it's millennia old and it, it often manifests itself. You know, we, we talk about racism and bigotry and all of these things. And I, I think um, 
many communities share, unfortunately, the, the burden of, of being attacked and being the victim of, of racist doctrine. But it's not all the same. You know, we talk about systemic racism, which is a phenomenon uh, related to the African-American community. Jews don't encounter racism necessarily in that way. We encounter it in a different way. And it's related to the things that you just said. It's very often that anti-Semitism manifests itself in this charge that Jews are trying to control, trying to control people, trying to control the government, trying to control the media, all of these different allegations. It often involves money where uh, Jews somehow are cheap or trying to use their money in some sort of nefarious way. It, it involves the blood libel. So this business of the lasers. So mm. somehow, uh, or, or you mentioned using blood for rituals. It's related to, to Christian dogma and the deicide charge. You know, the idea that Jews killed Jesus, which that was all changed with Nostra Aetate by the Pope in the late 1960s, where he declared that Jews were not responsible for, for the killing of Christ. And of course, there's often uh, this sort of dual loyalty charge, where Jews are somehow not loyal to the country that they're living in. They're loyal mm -hmm. to something else. So these are the ways that anti-Semitism manifests itself. And as you hear the various things, what you just heard in terms of the, the lasers or uh, the pedophiles, or what I mentioned before about Jews kind of trying to work with the non-white races to control the white races, like it all fits with this paradigm. And somehow, even though anti-Semitism morphs and changes over the years, it always involves these various themes. Uh, and of course we have now, unfortunately, the theme of Holocaust denial, which is yes. particularly pernicious and, and heinous, which you see yes. a lot on social media. Yes. And why do the white supremacists want to destroy our democracy? Yeah. What is, is it about our democracy that is so challenging? That, that is a very good question. It's, it's not so much that they want to destroy our democracy, but they believe that our society is being taken over and that they need to, de to defend our society. Mm -hmm. But no one can be a patriot if they spend most of their energy uh, hating most of their fellow Americans or many of their fellow Americans just because of their skin color or their ethnicity or their religion. You know, white supremacists, whatever their type, they seek a, a white dominated America in, in which all of these people are expelled or killed and but certainly not patriotic. So how can people get involved in the work that you're doing? And do you guys have a, a current campaign that you are rolling out right now? Well, thank you very much for that question. Uh, ADL is actually just rolled out a very important campaign called PROTECT. PROTECT is an acronym. Uh, it calls for seven actions that need to be taken in response to far-right extremism. So P-R-O-T-E-C-T, -E each one of those letters stands for a different action. And Jonathan Greenblatt, ADL's CEO, spoke uh, to the Homeland Security Committee of Congress, and he presented this to them and outlined it. We see in the wake of this terrible polarized time that we're living in, in the wake of what happened on January 6th, and with this new administration, 
we see an opportunity here to uh, to finally take steps against extremists. And if you go to our website, adl.org, you can see uh, what PROTECT means, but it's really a whole community effort to combat this. And there'll be lots of opportunities at the federal level and at the state level, uh, certainly in New York State, to uh, implement pieces of PROTECT. And we're going to have lots of programming related to it. On our website, I should say, there are a lot of resources uh, if people want to get involved, ways to get involved, ways to take action. We work in the schools. Very important piece of ADL's work. So ADL is not just about speaking out. ADL is also working really grassroots. We are responding to incidents. Any incidents of anti-Semitism or hate, you can report it at our website, and we will help you work through that. ADL.org forward slash incident, and you can re report it there. And in terms of education in the schools, we do a huge amount of anti-bias and anti-bullying training uh, in the schools, uh, especially, uh, you know, we, we work certainly in uh, New York City and, and environs in New Jersey, but we actually have a satellite office in Albany uh, that does a great deal of work uh, in the Capital District region. We have something called No Place for Hate. It's a designation that we give to schools that have been through a year-long process of engaging in activity where they are countering hate in their school. It's administrators and teachers and uh, parents and students coming together, but it's really student-led. And I believe there are about 80 schools uh, in, um, in upstate New York, mostly in the, in the area of Albany, that are involved in this this year, impacting many, many tens of thousands of students. Uh, so we're, we're particularly proud of those programs, obviously, trying to uh, affect the, the next generation and uh, make our, our world a place that's, that's more just and, and more fair uh, and more equitable and inclusive. Well, Mr. Scott Richmond, we are so glad you decided to join us for another segment of Reclaiming History. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was part two of Reclaiming History with ADL's Scott Richmond, The Fight Against Hate. Livonia Mallory will continue our new series, The Fight Against Hate. Look for more upcoming discussions with the NAACP reps, Dr. Farley of Albany Law School, and Stephanie Myers and others. We look forward to this new series by Livonia Mallory. For those of you just tuning in, I'm Livonia Mallory. And I'm Guy Schaefer, and you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community. And it's supported by independent donations. Thank you to all our volunteers and sanctuary sustainers. You can hear all of the stories on today's program at mediasanctuary.org. Next, we have McKenna Connors speaking with Richard Ring, botanist and ontologist, about the wonders of how we can preserve the biodiversity of um, the American Northeast. What are some of the most interesting species in the American Northeast? There are so very many interesting species in the American Northeast. Species of what in particular? Um, well, birds <laughs> and insects are particularly fascinating. So any birds or insects that you might, you know, want to point out? 
Yeah, I've been enjoying, I live here just a few blocks from Sanctuary, and I've been enjoying this winter the owls that occupy Oakwood Cemetery. Um, and actually noticed even if once I had somebody um, pull over while I was outside my house listening to a pair of great horned owls, and they had been driving around the neighborhood looking for them and listening to them. Um, so there's been a breeding pair and owls breed very early. They're already on nests, great horned owls. I had never, I hadn't encountered them in a long time and never in Troy, but this winter they've been, there's been at least three in Oakwood Cemetery singing at, at, uh, at dusk and just after, hooting to each other. Screech owls as well, which make a sort of uh, spookier, faster call and are very small, smaller than a crow, but uh, hang out. Yeah, exactly. Oh, so um, they, they're often in, in urban or suburban settings. And um, they have heard for a few years, sometimes I'll go outside in the middle of the night and there'll be one uh, in the fir tree outside my house. So it's been a good winter for owls here in Troy. How do these species interact with each other and take part in the ecosystems of the region? Well, all of us are taking part in the ecosystem all of the time <laughs> is, is one answer. And I'm not trying to be funny, um, but that's really how it works um, and, and a good thing to remember. We're all, we have ecosystems inside us <laughs> of of microorganisms and we're we um beginning with when we became organisms that have cells with a nucleus we became a combination of more than one organism and we've got whole ecosystems going on in our guts um right now and outside it's the same way everything is interacting with everything else um as far as the owls uh, the great horned owls are sort of the, the biggest. Um, so as far as they're interacting with each other, I think they might chase off smaller owls, including barred owls, which are more common, but I have not ever heard them here in Troy, um, but they're more common in generally. The great horned owls are kind of at the top of our, the king of the Troy jungle forest, as it were, owl-wise, and um, screech owls are smaller and probably try and hide away from the great horned owls. I hear them, uh, but usually not at the same time in the same place here in Troy. Mm. Are there any major threats to the ecosystems and biodiversity of the American Northeast? And if so, what are they? It's hard to know where to start. There's so many threats. I'm really grateful to the sanctuary and Lights Out Norlight for um, tackling a local threat, which is the emissions from the Norlight plant directed right at North Troy and the sanctuary where I live. Um, so that's one big one. Again, every all of us are interacting with each other and interacting with the entire ecosystem and everything we put into it. And although we've known that for a long time, uh, we continue to behave as if we didn't. You know, the sanctuary is taking that on and working on things like the fact that we're breathing plastic all day um, which is a terrible thing to come to realize, especially as the whole world is shut down largely because of something that affects how we breathe. 
So those are a couple of threats that jump to mind. Obviously, global warming, which also has to do with what we're pumping into the air and what we're breathing, um, and its changes to the atmosphere. You know, here in Oakwood Forest, it's very easy to notice when you walk around that there's lovely big trees through it, and very few young trees, very few even tree seedlings, and that's because the deer population is so high um, here in the Northeast. Um, the immediate threat to rare plants, which is what I work on for a job, obviously global warming is out there, but deer herbivory and browsing and deer overpopulation is really one of the very biggest threats to, to plants and to the animals that depend on those plants, yeah. like us. Are there any natural predators that might be able to regulate the deer population? That right, that niche would have been wolves. Um, and to some extent humans. And the coyotes that we have here have been increasing and are actually before colonial times, um, there weren't coyotes in Eastern North America. The coyotes were just in the West and the coyotes that we have are actually genetically have a lot of wolf in them. So to some extent wolves have been starting can be deer predators and have been starting to regulate the deer population, um, but they're not yet quite big enough to be doing uh, much effective control of that. So as far as regulating partly how we develop, the, the we tend to create a lot of edges, areas that are like solid forest for hundreds of square miles, like the Adirondack don't tend to have such high populations, but suburban areas, um, and farm areas without natural and fewer human predators tends to have more deer. What actions can people take to help preserve biodiversity and wildlife? Good question. What actions can people take? Um, well, being aware of um, where your food comes from and the waste that you're producing and you know, in a variety of ways. And it's very hard in the culture that we have, no one can do so perfectly. Gardening both to create some of the food that you produce and also to provide some habitat for insect and bird and other wildlife populations can start to help and to join organizations working on the same thing. So if someone wanted to learn more about local, local wildlife and, you know, helping preserve said wildlife, what resources might you suggest that they use to find out more information? Um, well, it kind of depends on what you'd be interested in. The Sanctuary's Nature Lab uh, is involved in such things, which I'm very happy about. Also, if you're interested in plants, there's something called the New York Flora Association and they slash we have a website and work on, among other things, education about and education and conservation of native plants in New York. The Audubon Society is a very good resource for information about birds. And they also, I think, have an office here in Troy. So yeah, there's some places to start. I'm sure I'm missing some. Um, there's good education departments in a lot of our local state parks, like Grafton Lake State Parks has a really has some really wonderful educators, and that's a good place to start too. That's just ten miles outside of Troy.
10 or 15. That was HMM correspondent McKenna Connor speaking with botanist and ornithologist Richard Ring about biodiversity in the Northeast. Hudson Mohawk Magazine Network roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry interviewed Hudson Valley Community College professor Temu Chambers about her 365 days a year Black history educational video project. This is part two of a three-part segment. My motivation comes from my background, of course, because my dad was a Baptist preacher. Right. And my grandma, she was a woman um, that was uh, steeped in the churches as far as, you know, like once a week you had to go sitting at her, um, or kneeling rather, when she's doing my hear, and, uh, and going through the Bible verses and that sort of stuff. You know, like common sense to me, be good to your neighbor. And, and but as an educator, um, certainly, um, I, my goal is to make sure that my um, students, they are um, become really bright um, individuals as far as understanding um, culture, uh, even more importantly, um, common sense. Uh, and what are we doing to help them to understand with critical thinking um, activities and so forth? So you're correct, though, um, Willie. I have done uh, many uh, programs, and I will continue uh, to do so. But I honestly have to say, for Black History Month, this one has been really fabulous for me because mm-hmm. I've been able to do the outreach to the teachers. So how could one get access to that? your project do you have a website where they could contact somebody could contact you but they when they um contact me mm-hmm. with their email um they, because they have my email then i send them the information they get it i mean like immediately they get a copy um of the kwanzaa fat book the curriculum and the video i guess i'm trying so to say what is your email that they could contact you? oh oh my email <laughs> yeah. of course <laughs> it's t period chambers okay um at hvcc.edu. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if someone listens to this, you know, and they hear you saying those things, they say, well, how could I get in touch with that person? Because this is the year of diversity, you know, because of the uh, Black Lives Matter movement and Black Panther and other movies, movies that came out that pushing that thing about, you know, diversity and, and inclusion. Yes, I'm glad you mentioned that too, um, Willie, because what I uh, actually, you know, I have done, you know, like as I mentioned, yes, this is a program um, pretty much, you know, like I targeted for the teachers, you know, like K through 12. And I was, um, I'm on um, Governor Cuomo's Amistad Commission, which I was, I should say. It's just switched over to the Department of Education, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, But as a part of um, the uh, being that, um, the education liaison for the Amistad Commission. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, and with the Amistad Commission, just briefly, my role was to assist um, the teachers K through 12 um, with materials that they could use, books and so forth, um, so that they can understand. As the title Amistad, um, you know, like you, that certainly emerges, so that they um, can have a better idea of the books that they can use and the, um, and the individuals or that have greatly contributed to this unfolding of the American dream. And so that was the, the impetus as to why I was so excited to be able um, you know, to do that. Because anytime I am elected to a position, 
um, or a commission, I want to make sure that I fulfill that um, that duty. As I said earlier, um, yeah, titles and trophies and trinkets. Um, some people, um, you know, to me, um, I'm being judgmental, but I think if you're an educator, that should be on the back burner. Your primary goal should be to educate, um, spend more time with educating, um, you know, like the students. I was going to say earlier, too, um, you know, like Willie, um, it's not only for um, the, the teachers, you know, like as I said, the point is, um, it's not limited. And anyone that wants to understand about someone else's culture, and specifically now, my culture um, as an African-American, I'm excited. I'm excited because they want to know about um, the history of African-Americans. Mm-hmm. So are you doing Zoom conferences to you know, outreach to people about this? Oh, yes. Um, the virtual ones, um, you know, absolutely, um, because, as you know, um, of COVID really has mm-hmm. limited us as far as um, you know, face-to-face uh, interaction other than, of course, um, you know, with Zoom. And what are some of the classes that you're teaching? Oh, you know, um, Willie, I'm glad you mentioned that too. At the um, end of the video, um, it also includes um, Why Study African American History. Mm-hmm. And so my students, my former students, uh, I um, had uh, have a little video. It's only about three minutes at the end, mm-hmm. and so and specifically with my white students, they talk about um, why studying African American history, um, you know, is so important. Mm-hmm. And you hear this a lot because it was pretty much neglected when they were in um, college, not in college, but when they were in high school. It was only really popular for Black History Month, and then that was only um, maybe a week, um, you know, or two. And so I like it because they tell um, you know, like their story. And then my other um, students, my African-American students, uh, they let everyone know, a, few, a couple of them, they thought that they knew everything about African-American history. And they were pleasantly um, you know, like surprised to know or that they did not. And so therefore, of course, there's, um, you know, I could say to everyone, um, no, you have to take the course because the course really enlightens you, um, you know, to the true history, um, you know, of it. So those things are, um, you know, really critical. So I teach African-American history um, and also history of Africa um, one and two. Um, And then another course that we designed, and that was the African-American experience course you know, like as well mm-hmm. i noticed in one in the video that you started the music with uh teddy pentagraph wake up everybody yes, why, sure why, did. Why, why did you choose that particular that was the theme, theme. um because the reason i chose that one you know, like willie uh with um wake up mm-hmm. i was just listening to um the music as many of us do and i um just came across his song and with everything that was going on today and uh, would um, wake up and time for the teachers to teach in an- another way in order to reach the children and that sort of stuff. It tells a history of what's really going on um, in the uh, African-American um, communities, and many of them, and specifically um, um, those, like, for example, in our area, in Arbor Hill, and some of the other, um, you know, uh, oh, yeah, some of the other areas where there is you know poverty they don't have the same mm-hmm. opportunity to attend um you know, like schools that 
are um, well equipped as some of the other um, United schools where they have um, you know, uh, greater or better teachers and um, and also as far as the technology and that sort of stuff. So we have that um, economic divide, which really um, unfortunately sets up a bad tone um, or not uh, a great opportunity you know, for young um, you know, individuals. So we need to be able you know, to create that. And so, and with the video, or, you know, like, we wake up, and that's what it's talking about. Um, you know, like, we, we have to, you know, like, change our ways, and, you know, you know, we have to get rid of a lot of the carnage and um, and uh, and the despicable um, drug dealers and that sort of stuff, you know, like, away from our um, children. And how do we do that? We have to do that um, by um, understanding them and practicing what we preach. And so all these things were um, extremely, you know, like, significant. And as you are very well aware of Black Lives Matter, mm-hmm. and, and for me, it was like a combination of things. And, um, and we always hear about these shootings of our young black um, men specifically. And, and also, we can't leave out the women or the young girls also just being in the wrong place you know, like at the wrong time. And it really is, uh, it saddens us to know that um, many of, the, of our um, people, they get shot um, or they're murdered or worse than or more so um, than any other um, group. And so we do know that there is something um, wrong in our society as far as social justice um, is concerned. So my goal is um, whenever you know, like I can, um, I want to be able to eradicate that, try to change it. I don't want to have to try to understand it um, because it's just too painful um, to do that. And by that, I mean um, it's uh, it's like a traumatizing event for people that do live um, like in these communities. The travel, it's, and it's also um, a traumatizing event um, for those of us that we want to do something. Our hearts are also unite bleeding. But can, what can we do? That was part two of HMM Roaming Labor correspondent Willie Terry's interview with Hudson, uh, with Hudson Valley Community College professor Temu Chambers about her 365 Days a Year Black History Educational Video Project. You can find parts one and three on mediasanctuary.org. And to close out the show, Erica Dulcinea Diggs speaks with Simone Agusia, a glass artist who primarily focuses on showcasing the beauty in African-American culture. Simone has gone viral on Instagram many times and has had her work purchased by celebrities such as R&B singer Trey Songz, hip hop legend Missy Elliott, soulful R&B singer Kay Michelle, and many more. To see Simone's work and to purchase a painting, visit Simone Agusia, uh, uh, that's S-I-M-O-N-E-A-G-O-U-S-S-O-Y-E dot com, or visit her Instagram at Simone Agusia. Hello, this is HM correspondent Erica Dulcinea Diggs for the Media Sanctuary, and today I'm interviewing an artist. Simone isn't just any artist. She uses glass in her artwork. Her paintings have gone viral quite a few times, actually. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest, Simone Agusier. How are you doing today? Hey, I am fine. How are you? I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> I'm great. Thank you for asking. And we're excited to have you. Okay, so what age did you begin painting? So, I mean, I feel like every everybody, pretty much, if they went to a public school, started painting 
at a very young age. My earliest memory is from the third grade when I was about seven or eight. So that's when I started. That's the first time um, that I remember painting. But at the level or in the in the light that I'm painting today, I would say 2017. Okay. And what made you begin to start glass painting? So with glass, I just felt like using glass in your artwork is something that was just so beautiful to me. And I paint portraits. All my paintings kind of surrounding like my identity as a black woman so I just felt like combining the two really made sense because like with broken glass and crushed glass a lot of people often you know break a dish or break the bottle and they immediately just throw it in the trash but realizing that there is still beauty within those pieces and when you put them all together it can make something beautiful and strong and resilient I just you know that really attracted me to using glass in my portrait artwork so, and then it just felt like it really represents the black woman as being strong and resilient, even with all the seemingly broken pieces that we have, it is still very strong and beautiful. That's amazing. And that's very deep. I love your perspective on why you chose glass, because I see you use every medium. Yeah, yeah. I love just testing and experimenting with like anything and everything I can get my hands on pretty much. Definitely, definitely. Okay, so who was your mentor? So I would say my mentor was mainly my art teachers when I was in public school, middle school, high school. And also I feel like just yourself is a good mentor. I, I never had like a what, a traditional mentor, someone who like took me through wings or anything like that. It's really just been my art teachers in elementary and high school. Do you think that having a mentor helps when it comes to being an artist? Absolutely. I think so. Absolutely. I wish that I could have like our artist mentor. And that's why I feel so strongly about mentoring others, because I know for me looking and searching for someone to like mentor me has been like a struggle and not knowing where to look. So, I, you know, I offer services like that, especially to like young developing artists. And like when they get outside of the school system, because I feel like that's because you don't have your art teachers anymore. So I feel like that is really important and is missing. As far as like using social media and like Instagram and YouTube and all that, that can serve as a mentor as well. I know that has served me as a mentor. And one artist in particular that I that comes to mind is an artist named Whitney Austin. Now she never personally mentored me, but all the information and advice and just her sharing her journey on social media has really inspired me and motivated me to like really take my art business serious and like kind of like what steps I should take as well so I think like even if you can't get that physical actual attachment to a mentor just using the internet and books and things like that as your mentor so I think it's really really important because you know, it's hard, especially within the art world, it's really hard to kind of navigate it without kind of having that direction and that inside scoop or just getting another person's perspective. So I, I really think it's really important to have a mentor in, in any field that you do, but especially with art. Okay. So now that's awesome. But now I know you are a viral queen. So what is the first painting that went viral that made you skyrocket. I, I know, and I think the word viral too is just like such an interesting um, term to use. But I feel like the the piece that got the most attention, like that kind of like hit me on the map, I would have to say is a painting I did of Kate Michelle, which is like a R&B singer that is actually currently going into country music, which I love. 
So I love music and I love painting people. So I came Michelle, Kimberly Michelle, she's someone that I really like looked up to, listened to her music heavily. So I decided to paint her and it caught her attention and she kind of like hit me on the map and really like shouted me out and it just was like amazing from there. So every every now and again, um, that happens, especially when creating like fan art. And another time it happened was with Justin Sky. She's super amazing. Um, and that was more so on Snapchat, but then kind of translated over to Instagram as well. And lastly, a piece that really kind of like hit me on the map. It was a, an original painting, which was something. And it's funny because with art, you never know what somebody's gonna be attracted to. And since like I have like deep roots in Africa, obviously, <laughs> I'm African American. I had this series of black African paintings that was covered with crushed glass. That it was like finely crushed and it was actually known as diamond dust. So I did a black painting in Africa, covered it with diamond dust very precisely. And Cub on stage, who is, who is a super funny comedian, had, like, purchased my work and, like, unbeknownst to me, had hit me on his Instagram stories. And then, again, everything kind of, like, blew up from there as well. So it's been an, an amazing experience seeing that. But right now I am focused more so on just painting things that have never been seen and people that I've never seen. So I'm excited to see how that kind of interacts with the social media world. But with those few occasions, it's, it's been definitely an amazing trip and I'm so thankful for those celebrities who really you know took notice in my artwork okay and what is the process of creating a glass painting I know that's got to be some hours you put in girl I know it's hours and like needing to have gloves and just like being safe and careful so particularly like I know from the beginning it's just something that I want to paint with glass and use glass in my artwork and mainly it's always portraits there's been a, a few times where they've been like landscapes or something abstract I've been really trying to get into abstract art lately we're not really getting into it because I do a whole lot of abstract art I just never post it but I from the beginning when I'm when I know what the subject is of my painting and what I'm trying to convey that's when I know like okay this is going to be a glass painting and then just collecting glass I've, I've been collecting glass for like years since I've been working with it and you know just very precisely arranging it on the canvas um, using adhesive to make sure that it can like safely attach to the canvas and stay and then it's like this whole chemical project honestly it's, it's been a few times where I've done the process live on IG which took a couple of days obviously from kind of start to finish but yeah I have a lot of IGTV stories or IGTV like shows I guess because it's not stories anymore because it lives on Instagram on kind of showing the process of creating broken glass artwork so it's, it's definitely, it's hard, but, you know, anyone can do it if they're committed and dedicated to doing it. And I'm definitely an advocate for people trying new things. Um, I don't feel like using glass is something that is, you know, belongs to one single person. Like, this world is so huge and anybody can, you know, try anything, especially with something as, you know, minimal as glass that you found on the street all the time. Like walking the streets of D.C., you see broken glass on the ground all the time and just really thinking about how, you know, looking at things with a different eye. Because, like, for me, when I'm driving and walking and I see that, like, the roads are glistening and the flowers are sparkling because of this glass, it just really sparked something in me when it came to my art. So it can be long and hard and cutting up your hands, but it's definitely worth it when you see the end results. 
Okay, so what is it like to be able to say artists such as Missy Elliott, Trey Songz, and many others have your artwork hanging up in their home? I know, it's crazy. It's crazy. Um, I never knew that art could really take me to, like, these destinations, especially with, like, Missy and, like, her being such a humble and down-to-earth individual, despite such major successes. Like, she kind of, like, my favorite artist of all time is Aaliyah, and to know that she, you know, was, like, like that's, like, basically one of her, like, best friends, and the fact that I was able to, you know, connect with her on the art level just was, like, such an amazing point and peak of my career because I just love Aaliyah. So being close to Missy like that and having my artwork in her hands and her just like really appreciating it and loving art. This is and she like she has like a really dope art collection too because she she collects art like nobody's business and I feel like even in like certain music videos you can see like all the artwork that she has collected over the time. So it's just really amazing to be a part of that. And then with Trey songs and being in that music video, you know, COVID-19 really brought um, upon us a very unique opportunity to really showcase artists and creatives, especially as Black creatives, because I feel like in times like that, we really shine and rise to the occasion when nobody else and everybody else feels like it's all hope is lost and there's nothing to do and nowhere to go. I feel like Black creatives really kind of rise above that. And for Trey Songz to see that within my work was such an honor. And I just, I, I was really shocked when it happened. Because I, I, even when it was happening, I didn't even realize that it was like Trey Songz. Because they just was like, oh, yeah, Trey and Trey and Trey. And I'm like, okay, well, let, let Trey know this and let Trey know that. And I'm not going to do this if it's like that. But then at the final delivery day, and I was like, hold on. You were talking about Trey Songz this whole time? <laughs> and then she was like, yes. And I mean, I heard the music. I heard the song and everything. But just never connected the dots never connected to me so you know it's just it's just been such a pleasure and such an amazing experience i'm so thankful for folks this has been hm correspondent erica dix for the media sanctuary and i spoke with simone aguseya she is a glass artist please go check out her work you can find her by googling her name that was hmm's erica dulcinea diggs speaking with glass artist simone aguseya to see Simone's work and to purchase a painting, visit simonagusia.com. That's S-I-M-O-N-E-A-G-O-U-S-S-O-Y-E.com. Or visit her Instagram at Simone underscore Agusia. That concludes our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Lavonia Mallory. And I'm Guy Schaefer. And our engineer tonight is Sina Bazila Hickey. Tune in every weekday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news. You can find all the stories on today's program at mediasanctuary.org and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash WOC 105.3 FM. This program is produced entirely by volunteers to learn how you can contribute to local stories of social and environmental justice. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call us at 518-272-2390. And if you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org. Until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.